Hello and welcome back to episode 45 of Double Reel, the monthly magazine podcast for the discerning film nerd. My name's James Adamson and I'm here to regale you with nerdy chat about films in the world of cinema generally. I'm joined as always by my co-host, also called James Adamson. Welcome, James. Thank you very much. It's good to be back. Last week, we brought you the first part, Double Reel Monthly, with news, reviews of new releases, and chat about how we're fitting film watching into our busy, exciting lives. If you haven't heard it yet, please do go back and download it, where you'll find reviews of new films, including The Three Musketeers, Milady, Rebel Moon Part 1, The Burial, and Saltburn. We also discussed the first film in my new year-long project featuring women directors, which is Oscar winner Coda, and we make an announcement on James's new film project, which will start up next month. We followed that up with the latest edition of the Penalty Shootout film quiz a few days ago. Just to mention again, if you're enjoying the pod, we'd be very grateful if you take a couple of minutes to give us a five-star review wherever you get your podcasts. Now it's time for our regular features, with a theme of films about films in the film industry. We start with Classics and Recommended, where we dip into our list of great films we haven't got around to seeing yet. For this episode, it's Robert Altman's celebrated Hollywood satire, The Player. Our hidden gem looks at lesser-known or underappreciated films that deserve a wider audience, which this month features Tim Burton's biopic of famously bad director Ed Wood. Then it's The One That Got Away, where we look at projects that filmmakers tried and failed to bring to the big screen. This time we discuss the strange tale of the long-gestating but unfinished Orson Welles film The Other Side of the Wind. We close our features episode with the remake Hate Watch. This month we look at a new and highly controversial version of Blonde, the fictionalised story of Marilyn Monroe. Next week it's the big conversation where we discuss the topic from the film world in more detail. We'll tell you more about that a bit later. First we've got some messages from listeners about this month's features. Uh, Our classic, as we mentioned, is Robert Altman's The Player, and Edith says, fantastic movie, I actually studied it in film school, that's how respected it is. Lily says it really was a sensation at the time. It's so well put together, it's almost impossible to find fault with. Our hidden gem, Ed Wood, got some responses, and Andrew says, this movie is a masterpiece. Kyle says, one of the few Johnny Depp performances I really liked. Jeff says, loved it, and Edward's irrepressible character, like when he says, worst movie you've ever seen? Well, the next one will be better. On the other hand, Mark says, Depp was great in the role, but in my opinion, this is one of Tim Burton's weakest films. Our one that got away feature, as we said, is the unfinished Orson Welles film, The Other Side of the Wind. And Michelle says, Orson Welles' entire career is basically the one that got away, which is a a good point. Uh, Sean says, Orson Welles was a true genius and the opening shot of Touch of Evil is one of the best things ever put on film. It's fascinating to think what The Other Side of the Wind could have been like with the proper backing. Of course, you could say that about most of his films. Remake Hate Watch uh, Blonde is, is up next. And Lynn says, in terms of positives, it's quite well directed, as you'd expect from Andrew Dominic. And Anna Diamas gives a phenomenal performance as Marilyn. But apart from that, it has so many issues. The story is messy and exploitative to the point of being distasteful. Gary says almost every scene in this film is made up. As a biographical film, it's dreadful. Uh, If you look at it as just a drama, it's pretentious garbage. Thanks for all your comments. It's always great to hear from you. Now on with the pod. Now for the Classics and Recommended feature, where we try and watch something from our backlog of great films instead of the endless movie repeats rotating on TV. Committing to do so for this feature has helped break the mental block around some of these films. I mean, we got to see and share our thoughts on a wide range of films, from Inaritu's technically audacious Birdman to legendary 50s western Rio Bravo. We have a growing list of other films to do for this feature as we keep adding films we haven't seen yet, and from the steady stream of audience recommendations. You can go to letterbox.com slash double reel and click watch list for all the films on our list. And you can make recommendations there or all usual places on our socials. 
This month, we kick off our features theme of films about films in the film industry with a celebrated Hollywood satire by a 70s legend making something of a 90s comeback. Our classics and recommended feature for episode 45 is Robert Altman's The Player. So, James, uh, this was something I hadn't seen before, although it had been on my, on my, again, on my list to watch for years and years and years. Uh, had you seen it before, before we nominated it for the pod? Nope, never heard of it. What's your history with, with Robert Altman generally? I mean, he's so far before your time, but I mean, what, you know, what, what, what have you heard about him? What do you know about him? Um, the only time I'd ever heard of him was through your dad, because he absolutely loves MASH. Yeah. That's it. Um, I know he was, um, he was one of the directors of MASH. I'm, I'm sure they don't have quite a few directors, or was he, was he the only one, actually? No, what it is is that MASH was a oh, film. Oh, it was a film. It was right, a film before film. it was a TV show. Uh, the, it was it, back, back then, you would occasionally get this thing. They did it with things like The Odd Couple. They, they did it with all sorts of things. Blue Thunder, if you're even aware of that as a thing, where you'd have a, a, a successful film and then they'd make a TV show out of it. And usually the TV show is a pretty pale imitation of the film. But MASH was one of those rare instances where they're both considered classics. But MASH was done by Robert Altman. And it, that was kind of his... That was kind of his big break. I think he'd done a couple of things before then, but like right at the start of the 70s when like everything was changing, the new Hollywood was coming in, right? He does MASH and it's a massive hit. Uh, and it's this really anarchic satire. It's it's really kicking upwards at the establishment, saying how absurd they are. It's about its set in Korea, but it's clearly a satire of the Vietnam War and generally how ridiculous Vietnam is, you know. But also with this really dark, satirical sense of humour really upending things, not just making serious points. It was making serious points with like a real kind of dark, you know, black black humour. So on the strength of that success, it sort of gave him an opportunity to make the films he wanted to make. And he was one of the part of this 70s strand of films that were done in a much more naturalistic style, not necessarily with film stars. And obviously the biggest hits were things like, you know, the Coppola films and William Friedkin's, uh, you know, French Connection and... Uh, the Exorcist. Robert Altman didn't have that kind of financial success, but he was the guy behind a lot of really, really respected films like The Long Goodbye, Nashville, which is like one of his biggest, like won Oscars and stuff, McCabe and Mrs. Miller. And everything he'd, he did was kind of, we're going to do things a new way. And, you know, it meant the establishment hated it. It was very newfangled. Um, so he was a really respected director back then, but not a director, I think, that people your age have maybe seen a lot of. I don't think you've seen any of the films I've just reeled off there. No. And he was, his, probably his main feature was that he was kind of the absolute master of kind of like overlapping dialogue. He would try and make a scene seem like uh, it would be in real life because in real life people don't just talk and then wait for the other person to talk and then make this like very crafted speech that they've thought for hours about. Do you know what I mean? It's like some people will say something and someone will say, yeah, or say a couple of words in the middle of it or two groups of people might be talking at the same time. And he had this real skill of doing that while still giving you actually a movie to watch. It wasn't just like rambling around. It was like he just, he wanted people to talk and behave and act more like they did in real life because he felt it would make the film, the story he was telling, seem more real. Uh, so that was what he was absolute master of. Uh, the the thing with him was that he was very respected and uh, sort of critically acclaimed director in the 70s. Not many of his films were like massive hits or anything. In 1980, for reasons, I'm not even sure why he did it, he was offered the chance to do a uh, something that's much more common now, <clears throat> but a bit of, bit of a novelty then, 
a live action version of a comic book or animated uh, successful animated character, and he did the live action version of Popeye. Okay. Have you heard about this? No, I haven't. So it was Robin Williams at the height of his just coming off his. No, you've said that. I do remember coming off his TV stardom, and they were up against it because you know when you try and do an animated film in live action and you don't have CGI and you don't have quite the same special effects kind of repertoire that you have now, it's always a bit of a struggle. Plus, the Popeye characters are really kind of caricatures. So trying to do that live action was always going to be a bit of a thing. Robert, it's not doesn't feel like Robert Altman material. Um, no. And it, it fuck. I think it actually made some money at the box office, but it was absolutely fucking critically pilloried. And he basically spent a year in the wild, uh, like 10 years in the wilderness. Robert Altman was just not a thing anymore. And it wasn't the 70s anymore. So it really felt like people were going, yeah, well, thanks, Robert Altman, for everything you did in the 70s, but you can, you can go now. We're not interested. And then this film happened, The Player. And did you did you read up about The Player or did you just go in and watch it? I did a little bit of reading just to kind of know what I was going in for. Uh, I what, didn't read, what, like, the plot. So what, what did you find out? What impressions did you form on the basis of that? It's it's obviously got loads of film references and cameos. It's, like, mild satire without, like, the intention of mm-hmm. trying to be, like, mean. Um, and it got a few... It got, like recognition at the Oscars and the um the Globes. I know it won a couple, I think, for Best Musical Comedy and Best Actor in a Musical Comedy for Tim Robbins. Um, but other than that, not much. Like I didn't yeah. want to read more than that because I was just going to go in. Yeah, you just wanted to watch the movie. Yeah, yeah, I thought, yeah. just wanted to know what you thought. Yeah, it's 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 funny, really, because this, it, it was almost like Robert Altman just completely continued where, it, where he uh, ended up because this was like a modest hit. Um, I think it made like thirty million dollars on 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 a not very big budget, so it it it's not like it smashed the box office up completely, um, but it did well and got huge critical acclaim. And it was almost like it's almost like Robert Altman's career was just on pause. Do you know what I mean? It's he st- he basically came back. You remember he's like remember me in the seventies where I make these films where not everyone would actually go and watch them, but everybody fucking loves them who who's into films. I'm back doing the same again, and it's as if I'd never been away. It, that's kind of what he did with this, and I think you you, pick, you 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 picked out sort of I think the nub of things when you talked about it being mild satire, because I think it's it's satirical about Hollywood, but not so much that people from Hollywood don't want to participate in the film. If you see what I mean, which I think is the absolute kind of. Uh, tightrope that the successful versions of these films walk because if you want to satirize Hollywood and have people from Hollywood in the films it can't be so scathing that they don't want to be associated with it. and he, he walks that fine line with this film um, so but I mean based on like the reputation of Robert Altman were you, were you expecting any sort of given style of film or do you just go up oh, let's stick it on and see what happens um I knew he was like yeah, he was he was much more of a comedy director than anything else. Like that was his kind of shtick and his style. Um, yeah, I think I think I think, go, I think that's I never right. Seen yeah, anything I didn't want to expect too much. If you get what I mean? Yes, yes. I think he's. I think uh, you know, if you look at something, somebody like Nashville, that's not an out and out comedy, but it's it's again it's satirical. McCabe and Mrs. Miller isn't really a comedy, but I think you, you have hit on it. I'd say you know what I was talking about uh, Amadeus and Milos Forman. I think that that's a good. That's a good comparison point because his films are funny. He's got he's got he's got a certain kind of he's he's always he's always satirizing or, or got an there's an ironic tone to what he does. Um, yeah. I think that's right. Um, 
The other thing about this is that I think one of the reasons he came back was because I think the 90s, this sounds a bit reductive and I don't really mean this, like that the 90s were trying to be the 70s. What I think is a lot of people who were making movies in, in the 90s who were kids of the 70s. It was like, I think you've got Paul Thomas Anderson, Tarantino, you know, the people who became sort of the big names of filmmaking and the, you know, even Michael Mann really became the big filmmakers of the 1990s who I think they wanted to recapture something of what you had in the 70s which made it like a which made the 70s seen as this classic era of film and so i love the 80s but i think people feel like the more 80s 80s more about just just entertainment like arnie films and stuff and in the 90s they wanted to kind of it was the new new hollywood and i think robert altman i think there's a lot of reason why people sort of welcomed him back so enthusiastically it was like people saying yeah can we do this again please you know i want to go back to doing more of this so what were your, what so what were your impressions on actually sort of you know watching the film? What what did you what what did it how did it come across to you? It's just, this is a seventies guy coming back in the nineties, and you're watching this thirty years later. How how did that all seem to you? Yeah, it felt very of its time with the kind of era that it was trying to mock. Mm-hmm. Um, because obviously, if you were trying to do a satire of Hollywood now, it wouldn't look anything like that. Yeah, the guy's got a fax machine in his car, right? I mean, that is completely yeah. not so, But yeah, it was it, it was good. Um, I liked I liked all the cameos and that. It felt very sort of like Tropic Thunder kind of Once Upon a Time in Hollywood kind of vibes. Like Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. Tropic Tropic Thunder was a definite definite reminded me of that for sure. I got not more, but I did get vibes of Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. Like I got kind of similar there because. Tropic Thunder is obviously out there and hilarious laughs, whereas I didn't think the player was hilarious the way that Tropic Thunder was, whereas Once Upon a Time in Hollywood has its funny moments, but it is like a real homage and does take the piss out of certain tropes of... Yeah, yeah. ...in the... In the uh, yeah, I, I, 50s and 60s. I, I think you're right, and there's a lot of stuff in Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, isn't there, about um, like where where Leo's character's career is at at that time. There's that scene with Al Pacino where he says, look, because you're not the star anymore, you, you're the one who turns up and gets beaten up by the hero now. Do you know what I mean? There's They, they, yeah. they, they do this kind of... You, and, and then he says, why don't you go to Italy and be... A, so there was a little bit more about what's really going on in, in, in the industry at the time and, and, and how he was doing, which... Yeah. Um, it's interesting what you say about it not being sort of full of laughs because... This is the thing that I found is that the player's reputation to me when I was looking at this one was as a Hollywood satire. But the the actual there's an actual plot line here which is something different. It's kind of like a like a crime thriller or a mystery or something, almost like a, there's like a noirish element to it. I mean, what do you think of that 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 part of the film, the basic kind of plot engine of the film? Yeah, I liked it. I thought I got the impression that it was a director who knew exactly what he was talking uh, talking about mm-hmm. and you know what he was doing. Sorry. Um, yeah, no, I, I liked it. I liked the the way it was presented. Yeah, I mean, so for those who aren't aware, the, the player features Tim Robbins as a Hollywood executive. He doesn't run a studio, but he kind of reports to the guy who does. He's the executive in charge of essentially getting all the scripts and going, which one of these should be a movie? So he's high up, he's powerful, he's got a nice car, he's you know, he makes a lot of money, he's he's a big he's a big deal in the studio. And it's his job, you know, sift through hundreds, maybe even thousands of scripts and decide which one gets to be a movie. It's someone else's job to green light them. He's got to go and take them to somebody else. So you do get the dynamics of pitching a film, getting one to agree to a film, you know, talking to the 
uh, thing. There's this funny bit at the start where every film is is such and such meets something. It's like The Graduate meets Die Hard, or it's you know there was this very lot of like re, the feeling of like old ideas being recycled. He was obviously poking fun at. That's the main character, but what happens to him is he starts to get death threats, which he can because of what the death threats say appear to be from a, a, a writer who he's pissed off. And he's pissed this writer off so much the writer wants to kill him. And I guess the the engine for the, the mystery, the whodunit as it were, and the sort of the source of a lot of the satire is he's pissed off so many writers that he's got no idea which of the, which of the writers he's dealt with uh, is the one who wants to kill him. Because frankly, there's dozens of people who want to kill him, basically, is the starting point. Um uh, I mean, I, I enjoyed that because I, I, what, what that did for me was that that gave the that gave the film somewhere to go. Do you know what I mean? It's like, well, yes, we're going to have a little, we're going to have a cameo here where someone says something. We're going to have a reference to these films. We're going to have a discussion of, you know, we're going to do a sequel to an old movie because we've not got no fresh ideas. All the other things they're taking the piss out of. But then it's like, I still need to find out who's sending me these death threats. Are they actually going to kill me? What should I do about this? So there's always something driving the film forward. I thought. Um, so there's from the very first minute I thought you've got um, Robert Altman sort of making a bit of a statement here because what what, what did you think of that whole opening scene the, the, the opening shot of the film yeah um, I, I liked it because it it said a lot without having to say too much if you know what I mean yeah, it kind of tells you how it, t- it kind of sets up the environment that the rest of the film's going to happen in, doesn't it? But uh, I'm not the biggest fan of just plain exposition. I think there's a very fine line between too much information. Like, I'm not the biggest fan of narrators. I don't like that. Mm-hmm. Um, but I also don't like it where you've got to figure out the entire thing yourself and you're mm-hmm. kind of a little bit lost. I think that's I think that's just a bit pretentious, really. So I quite liked that. I felt like it established where we were and where. Um, where Tim Robbins was, um, you know, at the at the very start of the film, I thought that was good. Yeah, and obviously, the from a technical point of view, the the entire opening shot is seven minutes long, and is a single take, which is uh, quite impressive stuff. Quite an effort, yeah. Apparently, they apparently this is really, I dig into the trivia. Apparently, they did fifteen takes of that opening shot. They got it on the seventh, but they did a few more just in case, basically. And then Robert Altman went back and went, no, you know, take number seven is the right one. So, fifteen times they set up that whole seven-minute take where one person walks into the 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 the, the studio built and studio building entrance, having a conversation. Someone else comes out. It's Fred Ward as the head of the studio, and he, he's doing something. It, it pans across, and you see one of the conversations that Tim Robbins has uh, of. Um, uh, someone's pitching him a movie and it's another fucking remake or sequel type thing. Um, you hear someone saying, oh, have you heard what's going on in the studio? Tim Robbins' character might be on his way out. And you also see the guy come in with the um, uh, with the mail, one of which is a postcard that you zoom in on, which is the one of the one of the numerous death threats he's been getting from the writer. And in that whole seven minutes, it, it kind of introduces the world like you say you don't need exposition you don't need like someone explaining the whole thing to you You don't need a narrator bang you're in it it's also yeah. got a lovely meta reference because one of the th- one of the one of the conversations in this is fred ward who even though he's the head of security of the film he's as into movies as everyone else is and he's talking about how all films today they're all cut like an mtv music video you know every three seconds you've got to have a new shot 
And, you know, whereas, you know, Orson Welles' Touch of Evil had this five-minute-long opening shot, which is one of the, you know, which is this milestone of cinema, which is great stuff. It's Again, it's telling you where this film is coming from, but it's also quite a statement that this opening shot and single-take opening shot is longer than Orson Welles. That's Robert Altman just flexing just a little bit. It says, Orson Welles does five minutes, I do fucking seven. And I thought, okay, then. I, I, that really made me sit up and take notes. And I actually... I actually stopped and rewound that opening shot just to watch it a couple of times. Um, it also, I also like the way it basically shows them all being observed. And then when you get later in this in the film, Lyle Lovett's character, the detective, is always hanging around watching them. I thought that was nice because the way the shot set up, it's you're looking through windows, seeing what people are doing. So when a real character actually turns up and is looking through windows, watching them, I thought that kind of, I think it built up the sense of paranoia that Tim Robbins' character starts to get because he might be out of a job. There's moves going on behind his back in the cinema. There's a new guy coming in that's pissed in the studio, new guy pissing him off and these death threats. And, and now the police are, now the police are interested because of the way the plot um, rolls out. Um, in in terms of this, how important do you think it was to be like a a, like a film nerd like me or or someone you know an industry insider who knows Hollywood inside out to get this film, given that it's a it's set in Hollywood, but there is that kind of thrill and mystery element. How, how important it is do you think for the audience to actually be really interested in the Hollywood satire of it? Yeah, I think you obviously have to know the industry and have to have been in those situations that are being depicted in the film because they need to be. Rob Altman's probably been in those situations himself and he has to go, right, well, how do I tell this? Mm-hmm. So kind of people understand where I'm coming from. Yeah. And then or what I've been through and then how do I reflect that on the screen for the the audience to kind of take in? Um, mm-hmm. I think that was that was important, definitely. Yeah, I mean, I, I agree it's important. And, and I don't, I think, I think there is an element though that you could probably not know too much about Hollywood as long as you kind of buy into the idea that studio executives are you know that the, the people in the suits in the boardroom are always the dicks right so the fact that tim robbins is a dick who doesn't know which of dozens of people it possibly wants to kill him you could kind of i think you, you need to kind of be interested in, in enough to care about the cameo and care that that's malcolm mcdowell and everything else you know turning up but I, I do like the way that the story does genuinely follow someone's trying to kill him and he starts to act in more and more irrational and and dangerous ways in, in like in response to that, I do, it, it feels like it stands on its feet as a story as well. It's not just a, a succession of cameos and in jokes. But when you when you look at the cameos and in jokes, I mean, do you, do you feel like you got the balance right on that? You know, when it's hey. like, oh, here's who was it that did, uh, Richard E. Grant is playing a fictional character, but it, it's Andy McDowell. Andy McDowell plays himself. Mark McDowell play, plays himself. Ha, ha, sometimes those cameo appearances can. Uh, can be a bit much. Did you feel like they got the balance right on that one? I mean, I think to have 65 cameos is always going to create an imbalance, but I found that funny. Yeah. To have that many cameos in a film is always going to create an imbalance with the rest of the film, but yeah. I still, I think that was the sort of the point. Yeah, I think, I think he held it together, didn't he? And I think some of the cameo appearances sort of work quite well. Um, because when you look at when Mal- I mean Malcolm McDowell, I mean you know who Malcolm McDowell is, don't you? I'm trying to think who what films of his you'll have seen, but you must yeah Clock, Clockwork Orange. You've seen Clockwork Orange, yes. So he's kind of iconic. It's kind of were you aware that he would actually be a big enough name to actually be considered a Hollywood celebrity in the '90s, or was that kind of a bit new to you? Um, 
Yeah, I suppose. I, suppose, I, suppose, I suppose you just took it as took. All right, Malcolm McDowell must be a, must must be famous enough to be in this movie, right? Yeah, I always mix him up with Terence Stamp. Yes, yeah, I know what you mean. I know what you mean. It's the hairline and the kind of intense sort of stare that he's got. Because I I thought his cameo appearance work was. I thought this is an example of why I think Altman was doing a good job with these cameos because his cameo is. Oh, hi, it's Malcolm McDowell. And Malcolm McDowell goes up to Tim Robbins and says, listen, if you're going to badmouth me, do it my, do it to my face. You guys are all the same. And then he stomps off. And Tim Robbins looks like, fuck, what did I say about him? And I think it just kind of says, Tim Robbins doesn't even remember pissing this movie star off. I thought, that, I thought, I thought if you're going to have a cameo, it actually serves a purpose. Um, and we have a film later in, in our features, which does cameos ent- <laughs> entirely wrong. Um, so we can maybe compare. Um, what about Altman? As I mean, I thought Robert Altman was a good choice for this. I think you you you, sort of, you mentioned Robert Altman's good choices because he he shows that he knows what he's doing throughout and holds the kind of the film and the idea together. The other thing I like about Robert Altman's a choice for this is um, he'd been around a long time, was a very respected director. I mean, I think part of the reason you get so many cameos in this film is that people are going, yeah, I'll be in the I'll be in the new Robert Altman film. He hasn't done anything in ages. Of course, I'll be in the Robert Altman film. So he's got that level of respect. He also knew Hollywood really well. And, you know, in the 70s, he was one of the most respected directors. But he was always slightly outside the system. Do you know what I mean? He was always he was always kind of succeeding a little bit in spite of what the executives in the boardroom wanted. They're like, oh, no, I don't want, I don't want, I don't want, uh, you know, everyone to, like, I don't want everyone to improvise in a three-hour film about Nashville. And, and then it's successful in, without anyone's permission. He was always that guy. He was always a bit of a maverick, someone... And but a, but a, a maverick who creatively succeeded, so I think I think it was good that it was him doing the movie because he's just just far enough outside what he's taking the piss out of to be able to do it. Do you see what I mean? But still, like within reach of that makes sense. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah. So I, I thought I thought that I thought that worked. Um, here's the thing: if you were to watch a Robert Altman film from the seventies, something like *The Cape of Mrs. Miller* or *Nashville* and everything else, I think you would really feel the like the, the much very naturalistic, very seventies style, very like overlapping dialogue and everything else. Did you did you notice that watching this, or was it just like maybe it's just such an established thing now that everyone does it? But did, did you did you feel like you noticed the Altman style when you were watching it, or was it just the movie to you? Probably, I probably didn't notice it as much because it's the only thing of his that I've seen. You yeah. might have noticed it more because you've seen a few more of his. Yeah, yeah, it's fair enough. I mean, I think I think he probably dampened it down a little bit for this, but I think it's also a case if he's so good at it, and and I think that idea of like ensemble people talking in an ensemble is I think more established now that it it it, it just it just came to me that when I was I've seen Robert Altman's like seventy stuff when I watched this it just yep it's just people talking it's fine it's a scene where people talk. But there was a time where that was really a big talking point in Orton's films. Um, did you enjoy the performances? Did you enjoy Tim Robbins? Yeah, I thought Tim Robbins was very good. He's always very good. This was kind of him. I mean, he'd had a couple of hits. He'd done, um, what he'd done? I think Bull Durham was probably the big thing he'd, he'd done prior to this. And he was he was the coming man. And he's only a couple of years from Shawshank. So we're, we're about to have a bit of a Tim Robbins era. I really liked the way he was... He was he was slimy, but you kind of followed him because what you know, without giving away the plot, he starts going out and speaking to writers on trying to find out what what's going on, and he gets himself in an absolute fucking mess, and his paranoia kind of spills over. He also starts you know going out with the the, the girlfriend of a guy who's just died and clearly has no conscience. But you sort of Tim Robinson's engaging enough to keep you interested in his character rather than just sit back and go, well, this bloke's a cunt. I don't care what happens to him. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. 
Um, Greta Skarki was having a bit of a moment in the 80s or 90s. Again, she's before your time. Her career has been and gone. Were you, were you aware of her before this film? Nope. Presumed Innocent was like a big, big, big thing. She was in White Mischief. She was kind of seen as like this kind of sort of sex symbol like character at the time. Um, I enjoyed a lot of the supporting cast. Again, the people that I... I mean, obviously you recognise Whoopi Goldberg. You probably recognise Vincent D'Onofrio in, in the supporting cast. Um, Fred Ward and Dean Stockwell are maybe people you recognise but not really have a big sort of cinematic relationship with, I guess. Yeah. There's there's a lot of... Fa- for your age, I'm, I'm thinking there must have been a lot of faces you look at and go, I sort of know who that is. I know um, them, but older. Generally. Yeah, yeah, that, yeah, basically. Um, what did you think of Richard E. Grant as the, the guy trying to get his film made? What did you think of him? Yeah, I like Richard E. Grant. Um, I like him got... as I'm like him as well, but I'm trying to understand why I didn't like him very much in this film. I didn't really have any feelings towards him. Um, yeah, I, f- I found his performance a bit cartoony. Like maybe he was still getting a hang of like being in a movie kind of thing. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, he is very thespian, isn't he? Yeah, I mean, I know he'd done film before this, like with Nell and I, but there were, there were British films that were coming. I mean, like with Nell and I, he, he could, his performance could be as big as you like because that's the whole point. And I feel like when you watch Richard E. Grant in a film now, it feels like he's he's more of a film actor now than he was when he was doing this. Is all the thing I would say. Yeah. But I mean, overall, it sounds like this gets a thumbs up from you. This is a good, good film to have like picked up. Yeah, it's, it's all right. It's not one of my favourites that we've watched on this, but it's not terrible. Yeah, I mean, I I enjoyed it. I mean, I thought it was a really sort of really well judged film, and I think for me, this kind of this is like a missing jigsaw piece from like the 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 '90s kind of new wave, which is obviously a big thing for me because that's my era. So yeah, I'm just kicking myself for not watching it sooner. Uh, ironic ending, very sort of ironic, sort of probably the most savagely satirical thing about this film is the ending, the idea that you know people get away with doing terrible things and that sort of thing. What, what did you think of that? Did you did you like the way it tied it up? Uh, yeah, I thought it was very much. I like the idea that someone like the someone reveals themselves as the the person that's been threatening him with the postcards and they make they come up with the idea to make it into a film. Yeah, yeah. So that yeah, was yeah, yeah. That that's always quite fun. It's like the ending of Get Shorty when they make a film of everything that that's just been going on in the film. It's always a nice little touch. Yeah. So yeah, I mean, I, this was just Robert Altman sort of showing what he could do, and he went on to have another little run in the nineties. He passed away, I think, in two thousand and one, but he kind of had this like late career flourish where he said, "Well, listen, if you guys are interested in doing things the seventies way, why don't I just." You know, I am one of those people. Why don't I do it? And he did things like Shortcuts and Kansas City. And, and um, he had a hit with Gosford Park. Have you seen Gosford Park? No. It's a murder mystery set in a um, uh, an English country house. It's absolutely chock full of like everyone from Maggie Smith to, uh, I think it's Stephen Fry, a bunch of other people are in it. And it's just funny that Robert Altman's the guy doing it because he seems like a very American director to me. So he went out, went on to have like a pretty decent 90s after this. So it's a comeback film for him as well. So listen, that's us. Again, the moral of this story always is if you think a film's really good and you've not got around to seeing it, get around to seeing it because you'll always be glad you did. Um, even if even, even if the movie ends up not being your favourite. And often, if something's a classic, you're seen as a good film, that's often for a reason. So watch it, you'll get something out of it. So once again message hammered home uh, and that's our classic unless you've got anything else to add as a final word mate nope very good
And now for the hidden gem feature about a film that is not as well known or as appreciated as it deserves to be. We aim to bring an overlooked and underrated film to your attention and say why this deserved to have more critical and commercial success than it got and why you should watch it or reevaluate it. This month we continue our theme of films where Hollywood took an inward look at itself with a movie which didn't find an audience at the time despite being arguably the best of several collaborations between its director and star. The hidden gem for episode 45 is Tim Burton's Ed Wood. So James, this is a sort of favourite of mine. I went to see it at the cinema when it came out. Not sure if you'd even seen it before we nominated it for this for this pod. No. What? Let, 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 let's start. Let, where, where should we start with this? What's your history with Tim Burton films? I, I remember you. I quite remember you liking Big Fish when you were a kid because it was on like Sky Movies a lot, and I remember you watching it a fair bit. And that I, I don't know if that was just because because it was on a lot you saw it, or there was something that you know interested you about that film. Do you remember? Do you remember, do you remember being it, being a fan of Big Fish at the time? I, th- I think I liked it because I was the. It was the only thing that was on Sky Movies, and it wasn't terrible. It's an enjoyable film, but. It's enjoyable because it's nothing like the shit that he usually produces. Like, I don't like any of his... The Nightmare Before Christmas is fucking terrible. The Alice in Wonderland films are terrible. Sweeney Todd's fucking... He's just shite. Um, so, Edward, I somewhat liked because it wasn't anything kooky. Um, like the Charlie and the Chocolate Factory. You know, those kind of films that he makes where he just, just gets Johnny Depp to dress up, put on a silly voice, and, you know, that's him. Um, yeah, I mean, if you look at Big Fish, that film comes out when you are, I mean, not necessarily the target audience for, for that film, but it, it is a PG. It's nothing. There's nothing in it unsuitable for someone your age to watch. The films that follow that are uh, uh, Charlie and the Chocolate Factory, Corpse Bride, which I think he only produced rather than directed anyway. Uh, no, he did direct Corpse Bride, I apologise. Sweeney Todd, uh, the Alice in Wonderland, Dark Shadows. He's... I think the fil- the films that built his reputa- reputation are all before your time, is what I'd say. So even the, you know the films that that I like of his are all films that are sort of bef- you know again before your time. Sort of, I've always had a fairly low tolerance for his kind of kookiness, but I mean I liked Beetlejuice when it came out. You know he has this good run of Beetlejuice. Batman is a big hit. Um, which you know, I think I don't think it, I don't think it stands comparison with with more recent Batman films, apart from the shit ones. Um, but I mean, it was it was a step up back then. There's Edward Scissorhands, uh, and then there's Edward, and like it starts to go wrong for me with Mars Attacks. Have you seen Mars Attacks? Uh, no. If you don't like Tim Burton, don't watch Mars Attacks because it's everything you don't like about Tim Burton turned up to a hundred. Um, Sleepy Hollow I like Sleepy Hollow from 1999 is the last film of his that I, I kind of like it's about the headless horseman and despite the fact that Johnny Depp is doing Swiss Tony from the fast show um, he's starting to get to that I've got a funny costume I've got a funny voice that'll do um, but there's a lot of fun and excitement and sort of dark you know it, it, I think what Tim Burton does works but I fucking love Edward. I absolutely love this movie. I think you liked it less than that, but still kind of liked it, yeah? Yeah, it was because it wasn't the usual shite that I was expecting. I reckon that's... I think there's a bit of kind of revisionism when it comes to Edward because we're so used to Tim Burton being absolutely fucking dross and Johnny Depp just going along with the dross that they produced that it it gets kind of looked back on with praise. But 
it's it's not great, you know. It's yeah. I mean, I think maybe I don't think anyway. Uh, this might, I mean, maybe this is down to my history with the actual subject matter of the film as well, which is going to be completely out of your frame of reference. You ever watch an Edward film? Um, no. Uh, what are you aware of his kind of status as the worst film director of all time, like the, the Uwe Boll of his era? Yeah, I did a little bit of looking up and discovered that that's what the uh, that's what people thought of him at the time. So, I mean, my my history with this is that my my mum and dad have got a, you know, obviously they like great films. They're the ones who introduced me to a lot of the, the, the great films growing up that I, you know, became a fan of. They also quite like a really shit film. Huh. Um, like, it, you know, the so bad it's good thing. And this sort of coincided with this thing in the 80s. It was on Channel 4. I remember it was on Channel 4. You know, this was a time when, like, Jonathan Ross was doing kind of weird documentaries about stuff in Japan. Channel 4 was doing some quite... They still do that a little bit, but back then they were really known for doing kind of quite off-the-wall stuff. And they did this season called The Killer Bees, like just a capital B, which was like B for B movie. And they said, let's show you some old, like, ridiculous shitty like B movies that are really fun for how bad they are. The the equivalent of this is in America they do this thing, Mystery Theatre three thousand or something like that, where people watch and take the piss out of incompetent films. And the absolute fucking the, they called it the Citizen Kane of bad movies was a film called Plan Nine from Outer Space, directed by Ed Wood. And you see the making of Plan Nine from Outer Space in this film. And nothing in this film is an exaggeration of Plan Nine from Outer Space. The it's quite obvious that the cemeteries in the graveyard are made of cardboard Edward got his friends to just do parts. Um, the the main the main character was meant to be uh, Bella Lugosi, the famous uh, actor from Dracula, but he died after shooting a small amount of footage. So they got a bloke who was a foot taller and didn't look like him to walk around with a cape over his face just to cut, fill in for him for the rest of the movie. It's just they used the same piece of like stock footage of a police car going up and down the road like eight hundred times. And it's like you could do a drinking game. You know, every time that police car just drives up the same bit of road for no reason, it goes from day to night inexplicably. Drink, drink. And it's it's that kind of fun. I then went on, I think after Edward came out, this is much later, but my dad and I managed to find a double bill of Edward films on at the, um, the BFI or the National Film Theatre down in London. Uh, one was called Jailbait, one was called Bride of the Monster. Now, Bride of the Monster's featured in this film. You can talk about it. That's the one where, in order to make the film, they broke into a proper film studio and nicked the octopus so they could do a giant octopus scene. But they forgot to nick the motor that makes the octopus move, so you can see the actors moving the octopus's arms for it while they're being attacked in, in what looks like a puddle. Um, but Jailbait is the one where, famously, and I've bored everyone with this story like 10 times, Jailbait is a, like a. It's meant to be like a typical you know, youth-like movie about someone falling in with a bad crowd and ending up, you know, embroiled in crime and coming to a bad end. They used to make loads of films like that. Edward tried his hand at one of those, and the, the climactic scene of it is the main character's meant to get shot next to a swimming pool and fall into the swimming pool. And in this movie, you actually see it. We watched this. The whole audience couldn't believe what we were watching. The, the actor grabs their stomach like they've been shot, like they used to do in old black and white films, and falls down. But they're too far from the swimming pool, so they just fall down on the, the, the bit of tile next to the pool. And you can see the actor look up, see where they are, look at someone behind the camera who's obviously giving them directions, and roll over three times and then fall into the pool. Oh. 
Because Edward didn't do retakes. Edward didn't do cut, let's do the shot where he gets shot and falls into the pool. No, no, he, he had more imagination than that. He said, just fucking roll over until you're in the pool and then we'll call it a cut, we'll call it a take. And both those films got standing ovations from a room full of people who were taking a piss. But I think there's a certain kind of love of how shit he was. Uh, he died in 1978 of a heart attack, aged in his mid-50s. He didn't have a successful life. But two years after he died, he was voted the worst film director of all time. And he's achieved a kind of immortality as a result of that. And that's why um, uh, Tim Burton made that made this film. Um, no, Tim Burton's taking the mantle. How shocking. <laughs> so... W- what 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 did this kind of conjure up for you in the sort of the, the time in the fifties? All the kind of these people, you know, people on kind of the outside of Hollywood trying to make a movie. What sort of what sort of world did this film conjure up for you when you were watching it? Yeah, I mean, I think it was it was interesting to see you know a film about a shit director, um, especially from the fifties, because I'm kind of the opinion that there was a lot of shit churned out back then. So I think it shows the kind of special talent that Ed Wood had to make a terrible film, or terrible film, sorry, in an era where, you know, they weren't as polished, they weren't as, you know, streamlined, if that's the right word. I think, I, I quite like that aspect of it. Um, yeah. When I think of films in the 50s, I think of, you know, like you say, grabbing your stomach because you've been shot and the kind of cheesiness of it all. Um, yeah, I, th- I think what... This film does, although it's about Ed Wood, it's about, you know, the, the character that Tim Burton plays. Bella Lugosi really was a successful actor, played Dracula in like 1930. He's on his uppers at this point in the 50s. He meets Johnny Depp by accident. They become friends. He, he, he you know, Johnny Depp wants Bella Lugosi in his films because he's actually a well, you know, everyone's heard of Bella Lugosi. So it, it, it does actually help him get his films made. And Bella Lugosi just gets to get out the house once in a while. So he says, yeah, fuck it, I'll do it. Um, and, and, you know, he, I think Bella Lugosi kind of knew that he wasn't going to recapture his stardom from the 30s, but he liked Ed Wood and he liked the opportunity to kind of, you know, vamp it up on the, you know, literally on, on the screen. But it also tells, it's this really interesting time in the 50s because things were really opening up in Hollywood. Outside of the big studios, there were these countless independent film companies. You could rent what was essentially a studio to film in and it was just a fucking, like, room in a warehouse down some side street. But everybody was opening up. I think it got a little bit cheaper to get hold of film cameras. Not a lot. They still had to kind of do like make deals with butchers or get or, or get christened in a dodgy Christian church to to raise money for films. Is all the all the tricks that Edward pulls pulls in the movie to make his films. But it was a moment where it wasn't just Warner Paramount, you know, MGM making movies. There were like loads of independent people just down the street. You go, look, here's a camera, here's a room. Can you film something? Right. And at the same time, there was the rise of the drive-in where it was sort of like, look, if someone can make me a quick fucking short, you know, 70-minute film that's kind of the the run-up to the big thing, give people a proper night out, people were driving to the drive-ins, didn't care too much if the B-movie, literally the B-movie, like the the second-build film wasn't very good. It could be a bit of sci-fi about grave robbers from outer space and then, you know, the new Marlon Brando is on, you know, on the waterfronts, the main feature or whatever, you know? And it, I think it was a good capture that time when it was opening up. A lot of people who always dreamed of being a filmmaker just had that little glimmer of hope that they could be one. And the other thing is, you're absolutely right, a lot of those films that came out then were really shit and really cheesy, but there's something about Ed Wood films. You know, a lot of those films, if you came out and just sort of basically did a film that more or less holds together, it would get shown a little bit as a B-movie and be forgotten. 
And you could probably find it, right? It's, it's on our IMDb. You could probably find those films, but nobody's watching them. People are watching Edward's films because he used that opportunity to make these films, which is like operatically bad. And it's really fun to just see this guy just said, he's not going to be deterred. He's going to make his film no matter what. And it's a lot, of, you know, a lot of fun. Um, I also like the... I like the way he's basically teaming up with all the like misfits and rejects of 50s Hollywood like Criswell and Vampira. Did, did you like those characters, these kind of supporting characters in the ensemble? Yeah, I thought it was daft. It was <laughs> but that, I mean, those are all real people. I mean, Criswell, the guy who's who's sitting there, he was a fake like a psychic who was predicting things that were going on in the world. He was like on like a late night TV show. He sort of befriended Edward, so he was like roped into making his films. Vampira... Again, this is all before your time, but in the 80s, there was this thing called Elvira, Mistress of the Dark in the 80s, and she was like a rip-off of this vampire character, where it's basically a woman with like busty cleavage, dressed as like a vampire or like Morticia Adams, making these sort of funny comments in between like the dodgy old B-movies. And she, these people were sort of cult figures who kind of got sort of sucked into making a movie with Ed Wood when they'd lose their job on the TV show or fuck it, I'll do it for a weekend. They're, they're, they're not stars, they're like outsiders. So they've got this little gang. And I love the way they were breaking into a real studio to steal kit to make their film. I like the way he he meets this woman in a bar who's basically a complete liar and fantasist who claims that she's come into a ton of money. So he lets her be in the movie, pisses off his girlfriend, gives this other woman the lead. It turns out she's only got $300 and she's totally bluffed her way in. But he kind of game respects game. It's like, well, he's bluffing. Why did, Why should he be pissed off at someone else for bluffing him? Kind of thing. And Edward, I thought Edward was, sorry, uh, Johnny Depp's Edward, he's kind of, He's just this side of acceptable for me in terms of like kookiness. Do you know what I mean? It's like, no, I, I appreciate the way he played the character. It wasn't yeah. like, you know, more recent Johnny Depp where it just goes completely over the top. There's that kind of, there's that fixed smile where he just doesn't want to give up. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. I think that's what lends itself well to the film is that the story isn't a usual Tim Burton Johnny Depp story. It's actually quite an interesting story. Mm -hmm. I don't think it's as brilliant as everyone else says. Like I said, I still stand by that because it's not, Sweeney Todd and it's not mm -hmm. um, those kind of films it's it's looked on with a bit more fondness it's like oh look they can actually do something that isn't just you know yeah um, that nonsense that they were churning out before but yeah I really I really like the story I really like that it was Johnny Depp doing what we know Johnny Depp can do and that is act he doesn't need to do the the silly costumes and the hair and the makeup and yeah you know, I mean like I think you'd have been an excellent choice for Gellert Grindelwald in the the Fantastic Beasts sort of franchise um, but they were like, oh yeah, let's give him a glass eye and a, a skin fade and bleach blonde hair. It's like, oh, come on, fuck. Yeah. So I think that's what I liked about this is that it was, it it wasn't any of that nonsense. It was like, look, we've got a really good story here. Let's tell it. So yeah, I think it's interesting that perspective on Ed, on Ed, on Tim Burton because from your angle, you're looking back through like twenty years now of just like, oh look, uh, another goth type TV show that I haven't heard of that he's made into a movie. And and you look back at this and go, well, at least this is better than that. Whereas for me, I, I'm looking at, I'm basically looking down the other end of the telescope with Tim Burton because he he'd had a couple of hits. He'd been like Beetlejuice, which was quite big. He'd done the back two Batman films, which were quite successful, and Edward Scissorhands, which was quite successful. And when he did this, I remember thinking, oh, Tim Burton's going in an interesting direction. I'd like to see him do a bit more of this. And I think the fact that this film flopped at the box office, despite. Martin Landau winning an Oscar for playing Bella Lugosi. It was well reviewed, but not many people went to see it. Unfortunately, that maybe he sort of retreated and said, oh, "I'll just do my kooky shit then." Um, did you like the Orson Welles scene? 
completely made up, but did you like it? Yeah, I did like that. It's like the it's like there's this is bit where like Edward says there's only two people in in Hollywood who write, direct, act, produce, and and, and do everything. Me and Orson Welles. It's like yeah, well that is literally the only thing that you and Orson Welles have in common. But they meet and sort of you know. I think you can I think you can play this as like Edward imagining talking to to Orson Welles, where Orson Welles says, "Oh, they're screwing me over in my latest film," and and Edward's like, "Oh yeah, I've just had to make a deal with some fucking weirdo Christian church to get sixty thousand dollars for my movie," and Orson Welles going, "Yeah, yeah, well, don't give up." Just don't give up on your vision. Um, it was, but I think I think what Tim Burton's here is done. He sort of reinvented Edward as a kind of patron saint of outsiders and people struggling to get their film made. And it, I think it celebrates the act of creation. It says, regardless of who's trying to do it, regardless of the result of the movie, it's kind of part of its charm that the resulting film is shit. It's almost like you could say, like in the name of Edward, let's just do our best to get the movie made, kind of thing. And it's like um, uh, he's he's almost it's almost heroic of Edward to just carry on making a movie despite his lack of talent and the fact that he went so far to get his films made tried so hard to get them made I mean he's a fucking idiot he's like yeah do a retake no no I don't do retakes let's just go <laughs> it's all fine and but the fact that he was just so chuffed to see his film actually shown in a cinema and, and just so happy that he got to make a movie you, you can't help but kind of it's, it's quite a likable film in that sense isn't it yeah it's it's endearing, you know. Yes, you know yes, the way that yeah. Tommy Wiseau is endearing. Yeah, because he just wouldn't quit, and like he's, he's yeah. he seems so happy that his, his film got made. Yeah. So listen, this is a bigger recommendation than me than it is from from James. So maybe you need to be my age to love this film as much as I do. I think this is a it's a wonderful document of a real guy, Ed Wood, and some like fun characters, and you get to find out what happened to some of those characters you know, in the little kind of end piece that you get at the end of biopics. Um, it didn't do very well at the box office, so it may be not be seen by that many people. I think it's worth a watch. James liked it, but not as much. Uh, but I yeah. think, again, like I say, moral of the story of the hidden gem is um, instead of the latest thing, the algorithm's pushing you, watch this. I think you might have a bit of fun with it. Now for the one that got away, where we dig deeper into cinematic history for stories of potentially great films that top directors tried and failed to bring to the screen. We look at what happened, why it didn't work out, and what it might have been like if they'd been able to realise their vision. This month we look at a very strange tale of life imitating art, a famous director who tried to tell the story of a filmmaker who was struggling to complete his latest project, and ended up living out his own story for real. The one that got away for episode 45 is Orson Welles' The Other Side of the Wind. So, James, um... I know this is like my little real sort of geeky sort of rabbit hole that I like to dive down. What was, you know, what did you know or what did you read up and find out about the, about this one that got away once we'd named it for the pod? Yeah, I, you know, what I found interesting is that Orson Welles struggled to make a film. Yes. Because he was untouchable at the time, wasn't he? He, he just blew up. Um, and I thought, wait, he didn't manage to get a film made. Um, so I did, you know, try to do a bit of background reading on to, as to why something like that wouldn't happen. And when you look at it, you kind of understand a bit more why. Yeah, you see, I, I guess for your for your generation, Orson Welles is known for Citizen Kane, which a lot of people call the greatest film of all time and all this and these, you know, the, 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 the I think, correct summary of Orson Welles is one of the most talented filmmakers, writers, directors, actually a very good actor, you know, while Citizen Kane, I think, is maybe hard to love 
straight up for someone you know who was born sixty years after it was made, right? It's still um, it it was so pioneering in so many ways, and it's actually just a really good movie, well the well told and all of those things. Um, and people regard him as like one of the greats, but actually he had a really very unsuccessful film career, all in all. Well, that's what I find out because when I, my obviously my experience with Watson Wells is that he did Citizen Kane, which was an absolutely enormous success, and you know Rosebud. It's like one of the most iconic lines in cinema. I mean, I didn't particularly like Citizen Kane. I thought it was a load of fucking waff. But then when I went, Orson Welles struggled to get a film made, and then I looked at the date that he tried to get the film made, and it was ages after Citizen Kane, and this was kind of tipped to be a sort of like kind of comeback for him. So that's why he struggled. It wasn't the case of like. He was at the peak of his career. He tried to make it, and then you know he just couldn't get it made because it was his comeback, and he'd kind of fallen from you know the height of his stardom. Yeah, I mean, it gives you a bit of context because it's interesting that Citizen Kane is just simply regarded as a success to you because I think creatively it is a success. I mean, it won Oscars. It was rave reviewed by the people who watched it. It's widely regarded as the greatest film of all time, and I think it's problem. The reason it doesn't play with you is because it's made in 1940, and all the stuff that people are raving about are like, well, yeah, that 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 kind of film shot, yeah, that's you know a, a lot of the style and you know all the stuff that works from that movie has been incorporated by everyone else. Everyone else who's ever studied film has studied Citizen Kane and said, well, I'll I'll, I'll compose my shots like that kind of thing. And he's a talented guy, but whether a, a story from 1940 with all sorts of 1940 concerns is often not going to play to someone now. The interesting thing is that film was a, a financial flop when it came out. Were you aware of that? Were you aware of the whole background to that? Yeah, because uh, it was they spent a fucking load of money on it. But the real the real problem was that it was a thinly disguised biopic of a guy called William Randolph Hearst, who, to all intents and purposes, was the Rupert Murdoch of his day. He owned a bunch of newspapers and he owned a film studio. He's an incredibly powerful man. He basically controlled the media. So while Citizen Kane was a great film, and it was, you know, William Foster Kane, you know, it's like, oh, no, no similarity to real people. It's like the whole storyline of, 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 of his main character trying to turn his, his girlfriend into a movie star straight out of Hearst's life. So much of it straight out of Hearst's life. Hearst knew it was about him, killed the movie basically stopped it being written about in any newspaper that he owned, stopped it being shown in like 80% of cinemas around America. It was shelved for a year and only shown like a year later because Hearst had that much power. So when it was shown in a limited run, everyone loved it and it was seen by enough people to to win Oscars. But it flopped because no one was allowed to see it. Because imagine someone trying to do that to Rupert Murdoch at his height in the 90s. He could kill a movie, do you know what I mean? Yeah. And it, and it just went from bad to worse there. I mean, I think... The, the background to Orson Welles, you know, leading up to this film, The Other Side of the Wind, he's, I, I would regard him as like the classic wayward talent, like in football. You know, you have these stories of players who are like, they're the most gifted player like you could ever think of, but for for a range of reasons, they don't end up actually having a successful career. He He's that guy, yeah? And yeah. his body of work doesn't match up to his talent. And it's basically, he starts with like the best film he's ever going to make, Citizen Kane, and he gradually works downwards from there. His next film, Magnificent Ambersons, that he does after that, it's it still shows a lot of his talent, but after the failure of Citizen Kane, he didn't have final cut. The studio took the film off him, cut 40 minutes off, you know, so he lost control of the movie and it flopped. He only ever had one big box office on, on uh, hit on release, The Stranger. So he essentially goes off and tries to make films more independently. He does a couple of Shakespeare films. He does, you know, a, a film noir touch of evil, which again, it's seen now as an absolute classic, but it was kind of so far ahead of its time 
with the, you know, we talked about that like five minute opening shot. It's seen as a classic now, but it didn't do all that well when it came out and he fell out with the studio during production, blah, blah, blah. So by the time he's trying to make this film in the late 60s, he's been in the wilderness for 20 years. It's like, yeah, we love Orson Welles. He's such a talented guy, but nothing he does works at the box office. He always falls out of the studio. He's always got to do things his way. You know, um, why would we give him money to make his movie? And he was, he, he would, various film projects, he'd film them independently. He would try and get money from all sorts of strange sources and unusual countries, which is an unreliable way to kind of fund a film, right? Your finance is always falling through. You've got to go and make it in a funny place. He he moved to France. He's very highly respected in Europe, but he's and he's still trying to be Orson Welles, right? I think he's always biting off more than he can chew and saying, "Well, I'll make a big movie." It's like even his low budget films like Macbeth and Othello. That's his Shakespeare plays, mate. Those are still quite complicated productions, and you're trying to shoot it in 23 days. So he's always biting off more than he can chew, and he's like this elusive. Oh, he's the great. If, if only Orson Welles had got the backing he deserved to make the films that he wanted to make, it would all have been different. But it wasn't. So basically, his film career is Citizen Kane and a whole load of other films that one reason or another are basically not what he hoped for and, and were compromised. So by the time... So in a way, when he's making this film, it's less of a surprise that he's struggling to get it made because he's been struggling to get anything made for like well over a decade by this point. Having said that, the story of this this film and, and the mess that it got into is kind of absolutely next level. Did you see what you know what became of this film when you were looking at what kind of mess it got into? Were you surprised by how fucked it all got? Uh, not really. No, like I said, like I said, the my, not my. I suppose my naivety just from not knowing that much about the guy, other than obviously Citizen Kane was like, what the fuck? What, why are we? Why are we doing this about a guy who didn't manage to get a film made when he's you know he's Orson Welles? But I think his, I think his kind of aura and his kind of myth, sort of like, you know, misled me when when I like when you first suggested this, I was like, all oh, right, okay. And then you read into it and you think, oh fucking hell, no, no wonder. So I'm surprised that I'm surprised it got released on a. Uh, Netflix, you know, thirty-five years later or whatever it was. Yeah, they sort of they sort of assembled what he'd done and tried to make a movie out of it, like thirty odd years later. So, the the starting point of this film is like, okay, I can understand why perhaps this whole thing fell through. Okay, it fell through, and so let's start with that. Throughout the sixties, he'd been ruminating over this kind of storyline, which he thought would be interesting. It's the first thing that kind of inspired him was the death of Ernest Hemingway. He was regarded as this like ultimate macho man, but had actually had so many demons and ended up taking his own life. And he, you know, he's talking, you know, also, you know, Ernest Hemingway was always talking about, I love bullfights. You know, I, I went to the Spanish civil war just because I wanted to be involved in the action kind of thing, but he was actually a really sort of messed up character. So he's sort of looking into this and he basically had this idea. He wanted to have a central character who was this ultimate kind of macho guy but it's all a facade and he's actually a pretty screwed up person inside. And he thought, well, that'll be interesting. And he was, I think a lot of it was going to be, it was going to look a little bit like sort of a disguised biopic of Ernest Hemingway, but it kind of morphed into something else. And that something else was a film director who's all of those things, that sort of ultimate macho big character, kind of like a John Huston type. The guy did um, Maltese Falcon and African Queen, legendary, you know, interrupts his... um, his location shooting Africa to go and hunt a lion, all that kind of thing, right? Um, what if he is sort of towards the end of his career and he's got all of these kind of hangers on and acolytes who love him and he tries to make a film and it's all and it all goes to pot? 
And then it turns into, and he's trying to make a new experimental type film that like, like people are doing in Europe in the seventies where there's no dialogue and, you know, no one's heard of these actors and, and it, you know, and it's all very strange, but it's, you know, but it's, it, it's, you know, it's, it's taking advantage of everything that's different and new. And then all the, all the different things that go wrong in his personal life, you know, the, the, he's basically obsessed, obsessed with his leading man because he's like closeted homosexual despite being so macho. But he doesn't feel like he can act on it. So instead of doing that, he always kind of destroys his leading man, seduces the leading man's girlfriend. And it's just this toxic cycle he's following. So, okay, it's an interesting idea. And obviously Orson Welles is going to reflect on this from the point of view of, you know, the idea of a film director who's tr having trouble in, in making films is obviously something he knows well. Let's see this. But I can see why it wouldn't fall through, right? Because he's trying to make an experimental film about an experimental film. He's he's from the 1940s and he's trying to make a 70s style film. This could all go wrong. He's not got the funding. So so when I first heard of it, I thought, oh, well, maybe it just fell through and that's the end of it. And then it goes off in all of these directions. I mean, did you see how long it took to actually like film, shoot the film in the first place? Yeah, it was ages, wasn't it? What was the exact thing? It was like six years on and off. Um, they had four months of filming 1917 to 71, right? Then he gets hit with a tax bill in America because the US government rules that his Euro European production... I don't want to get into detail. The European production company was more than just a holding company or what a, whatever it was, but he'd, he'd basically given his production company the wrong tax status and they hit him with a massive tax bill that he couldn't pay, so he had to shut down production. So he loses all the funding that he had. He can't make the rest of the film. He's stuck. He goes around, he makes another film to raise some money. He gets some money promised from the brother-in-law of the Shah of Iran, who is still in power in the 70s, a highly controversial figure at the time, known for having secret police and being repressive, lots of oil money swilling around. The Shah's brother-in-law is giving you some money, okay? But you've got to deal with an intermediary who's a Spanish film executive. So they have another run of filming in 1974. The real John Huston, which is interesting because he's his character is like... It, is based on him to some extent, and yet he's not offended by that, and he just loves Orson Welles, so he's, yeah, fuck it, I'll do it. He's, John Huston gave no fucks, so he comes along and starts filming. Horrendous weather shuts them down, like Spain gets hit by storms and floods, like what happened to Terry Gilliam on the mannequin deal, killed Don Quixote first time around. He moves to Arizona to try and do some filming there, and he finds out that the Spanish intermediary that's been dealing with the Shah has been embezzling the whole budget, so they've got no money again. So they sh shut down. He takes other acting jobs. He um, uh, does voiceover work. Does an advert for some fucking like wine. All this stuff. Tries to make money from other other backers. He tries to keep editing what he's done on and off. He does some more filming in 1976. His relationship with the Iranian financiers are broken down because they've blamed him for the embezzlement. And Orson Welles wasn't fucking me, mate. It was your intermediary. So he's struggling like hell to get it done. So by 1976, he's finally got filming done. But it's all over the place. I mean, imagine trying to film in three different sections, three years apart. Some of it's done in Arizona. Some of it's done in Spain. Some of it's done at his house in France. And you've got to pull that together into like one movie. It's absolutely all over the place. Some of it's in black and white. Some of it's in color. I don't know if that was on purpose, like for the start. I don't know. But it's, it's, it's absolutely dragged around. And th then what happens is he's still trying to get this done. He's editing in his spare time. And then in 1978, 79... There's a revolution in Iran. The Shah's brother-in-law is basically fucked off. And I think the government of Iran makes a legal claim on the investment that's been made with Iranian money into Orson Welles' film. So now he's like, legally, he's, he, has, he can't touch the film and he's got all of these kind of legal troubles trying to get hold of the movie. 
1985, he's still been, he's edited about 40 minutes of footage. He says to Peter Bogdanovich, who's another film director, friend of his, who's also in the film, if I die before I get this done, will you finish it for me? In 1985, he does die. And it takes another 30 years to kind of resolve all sorts of legal and financial troubles with the fucking Ayatollahs of Iran to get a hold of the footage and then try and put a film together. And at that point, it's like, well, how does anybody know what Orson Welles was going to do with this kind of mess of footage that he assembled, right? But they put it together and try and put a film out in 2018 on Netflix. So it's like, it takes 50 years to make this movie, right? And, and in the end, it's still not finished, is it? No, it's it's an absolute mess. Did you watch the, what was on Netflix, yeah? Yeah, but it's shit. I mean, <laughs> I didn't watch all of it. I thought this is just too choppy. It's all, nothing really makes a coherent sort of story. Yeah, I mean, we'll never know what it would have been like, right, if you'd actually managed to just shoot all the movie in one go, yeah? Maybe it would have been more coherent. But but also, I do think, again, this is also Wells biting off more than he can chew. He's trying to make a, like a, a, an experimental, non-narrative 70s-style film, as well as all of these other things that he's trying to do. And the thing about experimental films at experimental times is that people try all sorts of things, and some of it works and some of it doesn't. Have you seen Easy Rider? Uh no, but I know of its legendary status. But it's got legendary status. You watch it, there's 40 minutes of that where like Peter Fonda and Dennis Hopper are just tripping on acid and walking around in town in yes. Mexico. It's like, it's not a fucking... It's like everyone goes, oh, everyone loves it because it kind of changed the game in, in, in Hollywood. But all the movies you actually liked from that era came after Easy Rider and were made by people who fucking just held it together and made a real film. Easy Rider doesn't actually work as a film. I'm going to be a bit controversial here. So a lot of this... It's half a documentary, it's half experimental, everyone's looking at the camera and not talking. People experiment with that stuff, and then they said, well, that shit doesn't work, or this this shit does work, now let's go make a proper movie. So I think even if Orson Welles is, like, does the whole movie, like, in you know, has the money and the time and the resources to actually make the film in one go, I'm still not sure it would have worked. Unless, of course, Orson Welles, because he was a very gifted director, maybe he'd have... Maybe he'd have done something different. Maybe he'd have gone, oh, I, I, re- I realise what I need to do there. Maybe he'd have jettisoned the stuff that wasn't working. Unfortunately, at this point, you've just got to take what you've got and try and assemble it together, right? Yeah. I mean, it, it's, it's, I mean, there's some interesting aspects of it. John Houston playing a character based on his own like persona is interesting. I think the idea of there being a documentary about his life happening at the same time and then the film's going horribly wrong... I think there's a potentially interesting situation in there, but we'll never, ever really know what this this could have been like. However, for people who are interested, you can actually see the footage that he filmed and some scenes that are acted that based on what he wanted to do uh, in the movie. Um, but it's... I, I think this film is almost like better as an illustration of Orson Welles' career as it is a film in its own right, isn't it? Yeah, I think so. And it's a wild story. I mean, if you if you get in trouble with the Shah of Iran and the Ayatollahs when you're trying to make a film, you've really gone down the rabbit hole, haven't you? Yeah, I think I think the game's a bogey when that happens. <laughs> yeah, that's right. You got to call it. Yeah. We close the features episode with the remake Hate Watch. This is where we shine a light on the lack of originality in the Hollywood boardroom and their obsession with remaking, rebooting, reimagining, or just plain recycling older films. 
Quite often this is our chance to let off steam and rant at a terrible and unworthy remake which sullies the reputation of an old classic. But every now and again the new film holds up under our ruthless examination and emerges from the hate watch with some credit. Later on we will also discuss a remake restoration. Once we've finished asking if a remake was unnecessary and should be removed, we will suggest a remake that should happen because it needs to be done right this time. This month we look at the second version of a controversial fictionalised biopic of Marilyn Monroe, which turned out to be a highly disrespectful and mean-spirited hit piece on a beloved star. The remake hate watch for episode 45 is Blonde. So, obviously, when you do a theme episode of our pod and every film's got to fit a certain category, that kind of limits your options a little bit. So we had to find a film about the film industry, which was also a remake, and that's Blonde because there was a, a, a like a mini TV miniseries version of this book back in 2001. Um, I don't think for that reason that we're actually talking about here was, oh, the original was fine, why did they do a remake? I think the things we don't like or things I don't like about this remake are other things, but it, it, it fits the theme. This is a remake and I hate it, so that's why it's a remake hate watch. Um, I mean, the, the 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 interesting thing about the the, the, the theme we've done this, mo- the, this month is it does kind of tie a few things together. The first, the classic references Orson Welles in its opening scene. Um, Orson Welles appears as a character or in a fictionalised way in The Hidden Gem in Edward. Uh, One That Got Away is about Orson Welles. And John Huston features in uh, Orson Welles' Other Side of the Wind and was actually the person who directed Marilyn Monroe's last film. So there is a little kind of thread running between these uh, films, however tenuous. But for Blonde itself, I I remember I I nominated Blonde for like worst film of 2022 when we did our, our, our Double Real Awards last year the second inaugural double real awards of, of which more later um i really hated this film on the back of me saying how much i hated it did that make you go and watch it before we decided to do it for the pod mate yeah you can't watch it you can't you physically cannot watch this film it's... i have to say i wasn't relishing the prospect of watching it again for this podcast because i just i remember when i was preparing to watch it i remember what it put me through last time, I'm, I'm not I'm really not going to fucking like this. There's some there's some films that you, you either, you've absolutely loved, and like we could do a podcast tomorrow about um, the the Dark Knight, and we we've seen it that many times. We wouldn't need to watch it again if we wanted to discuss it, but we watch it again anyway because we love it. Because yeah, but, oh, well, I'll tell you, any excuse, right? Any excuse to watch it. Yeah, again. but this is one of those ones that if you've watched the whole way through, I haven't. Uh, and I don't think it, that's necessarily a, a criticism of myself because it is just... Uh, oh, it's fucking yeah. gruelling. It's a fucking gruelling experience. And sometimes uh, films are gruelling. I mean, I know I don't want to kind of prejudge what we'll probably talk about in the, the Double Reel Awards, which is our big conversation this month. You're probably going to talk about Killers of the Flower Moon because you watched that recently. Yeah. I found that a gruelling watch, but I found it a gruelling watch in what's also an excellent film. This is gruelling just because you just think, well, this is fucking painful. This is... Sh- really awful, like an awful experience for no reason, really. Um, in terms of background, this is directed, written and directed by Andrew Dominic, who came to prominence with a film called The Assassination of Jesse James by the coward Robert Ford, where Brad Pitt plays uh, Jesse James and uh, Casey Affleck plays uh, Robert Ford, the, the man who, who, who killed uh, Brad Pitt in, in, in real life, despite being friends with him or part of his gang for a while. That was a very myth-making western. That was a very singular take on, like a you know, wild west kind of legend. I think we talked in the past about biopics about that that era of Billy the Kid and stuff. So we almost we always come and agreed they're like the, the legends of King Arthur, aren't they? You can basically retell the story however you want because that's what it is. 
different story of this subject matter. Marilyn Monroe is one of the most famous people of the, the 20th century. One of, of the most, yeah. one of the most photographed and written about people of all time. You know, they they talk about if you if you want to do research on Marilyn Monroe, you don't just find out what biography has been written about. Right? You get you get um, a list of articles on online about which what are the ten best biographies of Marilyn Monroe because there's so many of them, right? Um, she famously was a sort of a you know the blonde bombshell, big huge star in the fifties, like sex symbol. Like she was in a lot of kind of light musical comedies and had this like you know slightly bimbo persona that she played on screen. Although I think she was she was a lot smarter than that in real life. Uh, famous for being in like some like it hot, a hugely sort of beloved sort of comedy in nineteen fifty nine. She had mental health and substance abuse issues and died in 1962 of a, of, a, of a barbiturate overdose, which was called suicide at the time because just the sheer amount doesn't seem like something you would do by accident. Um, but I don't think anyone really knows for sure. There's you know, conspiracy theories that she was murdered by the CIA because she'd had an affair with JFK. But frankly, there'd be a, there'd be a trail of bodies from here to fucking Alaska if they'd killed everyone who had an affair with JFK, right? Um so who there knows? probably is. We just we haven't found them yet. <laughs> but um, so this blonde, it was originally a book by a woman called Joyce Carol Oates. It was a, it was always said to be a very very fictionalized version of her life, and again, it's been made into a miniseries before, which is why it's a remake here. Um, in the original book, it doesn't actually name any of the people involved, but it's obvious who it is. The playwright is obviously Arthur Miller. The baseball star is obviously Joe DiMaggio. The lead, the lead character is obviously Marilyn Monroe. So it's a very, very thin veil, really, of fictionalization. So a lot of people have taken this as this is what the story was like in Marilyn Monroe. Before we talk about how this film portrays Marilyn Monroe, what were your impressions of Marilyn Monroe like? You know, from what from what you knew about her, and what sort of story of Marilyn Monroe did that mean you you might expect in a biopic? Yeah, I mean, I knew she was like the most desired woman of you know the the fifties and obviously the early sixties, and she still kind of got that status. You'll still see like middle aged women posting pictures of her on Facebook with a quote that she definitely didn't say mm-hmm. because that's just Marilyn Monroe. Um, so yeah. she's still what sixty two years on. She's still, you know iconic i know that um my, my grandmother absolutely loved the film my mum loves some like it hot Mum, grandmother for one of my mum's birthdays or christmas one year did like a kind of stitching thing of marilyn monroe and it was like this mm-hmm. beautiful thing that my grandmother had stitched so and that was like in say 2015 or something like that so you know she still has a kind of legendary status just for being you know a beautiful actress from the 50s and 60s. Yeah, I mean, she was a type, is like, you know, uh, other actresses built whole careers on imitating her, like Jane Mansfield, um, uh, Diana Dawes over in, we was considered the British Marilyn Monroe because they just had the same platinum blonde you know, look and, and, and style. Um, yeah. She was an Andy Warhol painting. She was an Elton John song. When Elton John was asked to do a song for Diana, he just recycled the Marilyn Monroe song. She was just a candle in the wind kind of thing. And I mean, do you do you think that's the story that stuck? The idea that she was, you know, like you were just a candle in the wind. She was just this fragile, you know, too, you know, almost too delicate for this world character who just got destroyed by by Hollywood. Do you think? Do you think that's is that the impression you have of her kind of personally outside of her actual career? Um, I don't know because I've I've done reading on Marilyn Monroe and it did seem like she was obviously 
she was I think we forget how young that she was. She was thirty six or something when she, she was thirty six when she died, and she sort of she has a a, a a small supporting appearance in All About Eve in like nineteen fifty. So in her early twenties, she was already a big name, right? Yeah. So, but I, I don't know. if Fragile would be something I would describe it as maybe, um, just given you know the kind of world she was thrust in and her uh, alleged affair with the JFK, but. Maybe I think for someone to um, die so young and she out with the conspiracy theories of she was poisoned by bad bitch, but she did have like problems with drugs and alcohol. Mm. So I think there's, there's a sense of kind of fragility um, mm-hmm. there. But yes, I mean you can never know about these things, especially when the film's being made sixty odd years after the person's uh, passed away. So yeah, I think if you were going to do a film with Marilyn Monroe, that might be something you touch on, but that's something that you probably touch on in every single film. Yeah. Um, we'll, we'll discuss. Um, yeah. For example, that... we did the Johnny Cash movie for the podcast and that goes yeah. heavily into his substance abuse issues, but also other aspects of his life. Yeah. Yeah. And I think with Johnny Cash, it's probably easier to see the kind of fragile side of him because he spoke so fondly of his wife, especially after she died. So you can kind of, if you're going to make a film about him, you can say, oh, well, he, you know, he was seen as the man in black and he was performed, uh, he performed at Folsom Prison and um, he's seen as like this pure bad man and he, he probably wouldn't want to mess with him, but he had that kind of soft side to as well. But mm-hmm. with regards to Marilyn Monroe, and it's the same with, as like I was going to say, we're going to probably discuss Napoleon next month because I've, I've now watched it, but we'll discuss it next month in the pod and that shows a different side to Napoleon. But with that, you, you, we don't know if Napoleon was like that Um with his with his misses the mm. same way that we don't know that Marilyn Monroe was fragile in her personal life. We imagine she was because she was so young, and um, she was in a industry and she was the most famous mm. woman, our person in the world, and she's the, probably the most famous woman of the last fucking thousand years. Do you know what I mean? Probably since you know Cleopatra. So there's bound to be another side to her that we don't know. But if you're going to do that, you have to do it right, and this film definitely doesn't. Yeah, I mean, I mean, it's interesting you say about Napoleon because you're right. There's when you talk about Napoleon and Josephine, I think maybe there are, there are some letters extant of their relationship and some what official accounts there were and what people said. But I think if you're in a relationship back then, I think there's a and, and, and you're those two people. I think it's it's far more likely that you you'll, you you have to kind of guess what things were like. The thing with Marilyn Monroe is, is that you know Arthur Miller wrote numerous memoirs and articles and gave many interviews about Marilyn Monroe. So did Joe DiMaggio. People who knew her gave interviews about her. Tony Curtis and Billy Wilder and everyone who worked with her on Some Like It Hot shared their views of her and everything else. Uh, and she's a very documented person. So there's, you're absolutely right. There will always be a side to a, a, a real character that you that you have to kind of, you know, maybe show that maybe people don't know in a movie like this. But there's also a lot about her. There's a lot of real material you could you could use. I mean, how much um, how much do you did it feel like this film used of the actual facts of Marilyn Monroe's life? I, th- I, th- I don't know. I don't know whether they were going by the book and they were thinking, oh, well, the book's written it, so that must be factual. Um, but yeah, honestly, I I I don't want to say for sure if they were going by the facts of. Marilyn Monroe's life. I think they heard that she had a she died of barbiturates, and they went with that. You know that kind of thing. It felt very similar to that Spencer film um, with mm-hmm. Christian Stewart. Um, yeah. and well, it's they, just, they've just decided to jettison the facts and make up their own story, basically. Well, yeah, that that's the thing. Like in 
someone's in the public eye, there's also a degree of they try and have a bit of privacy in their life. So mm-hmm. when that person's the subject of a film or documentary, there's a lot of speculation and, you know, I think that's one of the main criticisms of the crown is that they're trying that it may, they're saying they're not, but it is almost presented as fact. And the, these mm-hmm. are the conversations that happen, and these are the goings on. So, yeah, I I highly doubt it, but I think they think that's what happened, and that's why they put it on the screen. Yeah, I mean, there's there's two main objections. First of all, well, there's a few main objections. But the, the overall style of the film is just unremittingly like horrible to kind of sit through, and I don't know why the, the director did it like that. The the other thing is. There's a number of just absolute factual inaccuracies in this film. The um, the story of her mother. Her mother was mentally ill, okay, but her mother wasn't abusive towards Marilyn Monroe. Her mother was actually, although she wasn't equipped to be a mother and was a paranoid schizophrenic, there's no history, there's no knowledge that she did any of the things that happened to Marilyn Monroe in this film. But it is documented that Marilyn Monroe, once her mother had to be committed to an institution because she had a breakdown, she was essentially fostered. A friend of the family took her in, and she was sexually abused by her foster father. Like while she was essentially after she'd been, you know, taken into another house, which doesn't get mentioned here, and I think would have been relevant if you're going to talk about what was Marilyn like the rest of her life, what was her attitude to father figures. It seems odd not to not to cover that. Yeah. Um. She she. There's no evidence that she ever had a forced abortion, and her doctor has confirmed that she did have a miscarriage, which happens in the film. But there's there's no there's no like uh, suggestion that she had a, a, an abortion and was forced to have it, which they completely invented for this. The relationship that she had, the sort of this sort of threesome relationship that she had with the son of Edward G. Robinson, son of Charlie Chaplin. Uh, she dated one of them, maybe dated one of the other ones, but the rest of that the relationship is totally made up. That one of them sort of was made, made writing fake letters from a dad. Not true. Um, the whole like uh, some stuff that clearly did happen. That the the uh, the fact that she was you know coerced sexually by executives early on in her career. I don't think that's it's documented, but I can completely believe that. Um, so there's the one thing is that they've they've jettisoned real facts, which I think would have would have served better to try and tell the story of Marilyn than the shit they invented. I think that's one objection. There's actual stuff that actually happened that would tell you a lot about her and why she had mental health problems and substance issues. So why not do that, given that everyone fucking knows that happened, who's read like one article about Marilyn Monroe, instead of this invented stuff. But the other thing that's really kind of... um, I didn't like about this. This is the overall tone. I mean, first of all, it seems like Andrew Dominic's got no respect for Marilyn Monroe as a person. He said some stuff in interviews about her saying she was basically no better than a prostitute when she made films like um, uh, Gentlemen Prefer Blondes, where it's kind of about gold diggers. He seems to miss the fact that that film's a bit of a satire. And it's like, if that's what you think of this character, why are you spending all this time and money on a film about her life, right? Yeah. And also, this whole thing, it, the whole thing makes it seem like she was this little lost girl calling every man in her life daddy and all that sort of thing. She did kind of believe from what her mother told her when she was a little girl that her dad was someone famous in Hollywood. But this film doesn't allow for the possibility that what you believe when you're a seven-year-old girl is not when you believe when you're a, a grown woman in her 20s who might have fucking like developed as a person. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. It's true that she called her first much older husband daddy she didn't call every fucking. She didn't call a manager and every boyfriend and husband she ever had after that daddy, and it, she she's just portrayed as this like infantile little girl. I mean, it refers to the fact that she's read Dostoevsky, 
It refers to the fact that she was actually intelligent, and, and there's one or two references to the fact that she might have been quite talented, but very few. But it's here's the thing, right? They invent things for biopics, right? And obviously uh, they would do that. You know, I, I mean, I think we have a pretty good like like handle on mental health these days. Certainly better than before. Maybe fifty years from now our understanding of mental health and substance issues will seem a bit primitive to people who've learned even more. But I think we're a lot better than we were 60 years ago in our understanding of those things, yes? So I could imagine someone saying, well, why don't I sort of try and conjure up with some fictionalised content what might have been going on in Marilyn's head? I get that. But if you take what they've put in that, do you think this film, the way they've portrayed Marilyn is this like total like little infant who doesn't know what to do with her life, right? And is always all, all she cares about is her daddy, and the reason she killed herself is because she never had a daddy. It's like that's literally the only only aspect of a character you've ever seen, right? You know, there's no time for any of the other stuff that she actually did, although they apparently have time to show an internal shot of a speculum being shoved into her cervix. But fuck knows why that's in the film, right? But can would you? Does she give the impression that the? I mean, first of all, I will I will give credit. Anna Diarmas's performance as Marilyn is brilliant. I'm laying this on the writer and director for the way they portrayed her here, right? Would you think from the way Marilyn portrayed in this film um, that she had a long-running contractual dispute with 20th Century Fox in which she was holding out for several years about getting director and story approval rights over projects and she eventually won that dispute and was praised at the time for her astute business acumen? Does that Marilyn Monroe come through in this film for you? No. I mean, nothing comes through to be in this film at all, man. Or that she was nominated for two Golden Globes for her acting and won once. No, there's, no, there's nothing... Uh, it, you, what you said about the director basically calling her a prostitute kind of rings true with the way she's depicted. It's like, she's this, like, not horrible, but, like, kind of weak and infant, infantile person. That Nothing about the fact that, you know, she did have talent. None of that came through for me. Yeah, I mean, you wouldn't just, for example, so weak and sort of just falling about and not able to kind of run her own life. Would you then believe that she was pressurised by the people running the anti-communist witch hunts because she was marrying Arthur Miller, who was on the hit list, but she stood firm and held out and they kind of left her alone after that? Did, did she come across as that person either? Mm, not really, no. No, and the whole, the, basically, there's this whole bit on the filming of Some Like It Hot. She didn't scream at people. She didn't scratch her face. She didn't spend the whole time having tantrums. Um, you wouldn't believe from that film that actually Some Like It Hot turned out to be a good film, in fact, and that she won the Golden Globe for Best Comedy Actress that year. Um, she had problems on set, but those problems were like turning up late insisting on having her acting coach all the time, which Billy Wilder didn't like. But Billy Wilder was putting up with all that because she knew that when she actually was actually doing a take, she was as good as it got. And it's like, I don't understand why you would just... It's one thing to portray something that you fictionalise because you don't have the facts, but it's consistent who that person really was. But this film portrays Marilyn Monroe as something she wasn't. And I just think that's fucking unforgivable. Especially when at the end you say, oh, she killed herself because she found out all the letters from her daddy were fake. It's like, we, we know why people who have depression and substance issues kill themselves, right? And they are complex reasons that you might have gone into in this film and you might have also have had time to, you know, like, like we said in the Johnny Cash film, we also get Johnny Cash hitting upon the right sound, writing some good songs. Do you know what I mean? Not just having, not just the substance abuse bit. And I, you've really got to have a fucking problem with Marilyn if this, if this is all you want to say about it. I really fucking, I really, I really took exception to this film. 
Yeah, it was shit. But I should I, give it any more yeah, time. To I've be watched honest, it. I've watched it. I've watched it twice all the way through, and I, I just think Andrew Dominic needs to have a fucking look at himself. So the the redo that, that that we're doing this is this one's a little hobby horse of mine because I'm not sure how much of any of this means anything to you. I, I suggested we talk about remaking a, a slightly obscure film called an Alan Smithy film, Burn Hollywood Burn. So first thing, had you even heard of this film before I mentioned it? No. Um, did, did you watch it? I mean, you, you don't have to. I don't think you'd get anything out of watching it. Um, no, but I did. I read up about it before we did it, of course. Yeah, yeah. Because, because the interesting thing about this is that the, the, the reason I'd like to redo this film is it contains inside it an interesting idea, but the rest of the film is so dog shit you would just fucking jettison it. The The whole point of the, the, this thing is the, the Alan Smithy phenomenon, and I'm not sure whether you were aware of that because it doesn't happen as often these days. And it's a bit irrelevant now because people can find out everything about films on the internet. But you were aware, were you aware of Alan Smithy? Uh, no, not at all. So... Back in, I think, either the 50s or the 60s, um, there was a film with, I think Don Siegel ended up completing the film. And he, um, but he'd, um, he'd taken over from someone. So it's 19, this is actually the late 60s. It's a film called Death of the Gunfighter. The original director, Robert Dotton, was fired and was replaced by Don Siegel because the lead actor, the star of the film, Richard Midwart, was kind of, basically using star power to kind of get what he wanted out of the film. The original director was fired. Don Siegel finished the film. And at the end of it, Don Siegel said that the majority of the film was still directed by the first guy, so he didn't want to take credit for it. And Robert Todd didn't want credit. He's been fired. I don't want anything to do with this film. Fuck Richard Widmark. He's fucked us over. So no one wanted to take credit for the finished film. And there's a lot of rules around the Directors Guild of America. You see all these strikes that we had this year with the writers and actors, yeah? A direct, you have to have a credited director. So the, they, they said, well, you've got to, you can't just have a film like not have a director name, so what are we going to do? So they had to have this arbitration with the with Directors Guild where they said, well, let's, if, 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 if I'm disowning this film, let's just create a fake name and that person takes credit for the movie. And they eventually came up with Alan Smithy because you can't, they started with Alan Smith, but there's like 10 guys called Alan Smith on IMDb. You can't have that, right? So Alan Smithy was just distinctive enough to avoid confusion with similar names. So this film, which is actually quite a good film in the end, is directed by Alan Smithy. Uh, Roger Ebert said, you know, um, director Alan Smithy does a really nice job allowing the story to unfold naturally. So this fictional character gets kind of attributes given to him by the reviewers of the films. Subsequently, there's like this long list of films where, for a range of reasons, like I didn't get final cut, I got fired from the movie, I refused to be credited with the film, the film gets credited to Alan Smithy. So Alan Smithy has this kind of uh, long list of films um, that he's that this fictional character has directed. He's got a, quite a long IMDb, IMDb entry of this quite wide range of films. Some of them are... Uh, absolute dog shit, and you can see why they took the name of them. Some of them are quite interesting films that, for just for a range of reasons, um, there's no director for them. And this, the film that you actually got made, Joe Esterhaz, the famed like screenwriter of um, Basic Instinct and Showgirls and all of that shite, um, thought it would be quite fun to do a movie about what if a film director hates what's happened to his film, 
but can't take his name off it because he's Alan Smithy. Now that joke takes up two minutes of this whole film. It's the only idea they've got. The rest of it is a bunch of shit star cameos, including fucking um, Harvey Weinstein as a private detective. So this film's on the wrong track right from the beginning. And it's all done as a fake documentary. It's a total piece of shit. The only talking point of this, it was so shit that the director took his name off it and Alan Smithy got the credit. And everybody goes, ha ha, even the film about Alan Smithy gets an Alan Smithy treatment. And were you, so you weren't really aware of the whole Alan Smithy thing, but this this is what used to happen when people wanted to take their name off a film, right? Uh, yeah. And, and you still get films credited to Alan Smithy these days, just not proper Hollywood films. More independent films do it now, but... Hollywood, like the Directors Guild of America, has has retired the name. Yeah. So I, I would jettison everything that happened in in the the film that 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 gets made that, based on the Joe Estahar script because Joe Estahar's. I mean, you'll have seen or heard of some of his films. We've done some of them for the pod. He's never known to be funny on purpose, right? So I don't know what he thought he was doing making a comedy film. Also. He, his bubble had burst. We talked about Jade and Showgirls and Basic Instinct and all of those films that 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 were successful despite being really trashy. He was at the stage of his of his career then where he was getting scripts signed off on the back of a two page summary he did on the back of a napkin. He's got absolutely no history of like having to really hone and work on a script until it's right. Not for years anyway, right? So I just thought it would be interesting to actually do an Alan Smithy type project where. Um, you do tell the story of someone called Alan Smithy, who's who's you know who has trouble with 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 the fake name, but I thought it would be good to do a, like a fake biopic of Alan Smithy. Am I am I selling you on this? Yeah, I'm, I'm listening. Um, so the, so the 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 idea would be like I I would do a start point where instead of like a fake documentary, you do a. a like I say, imagine this has really happened. It's, it's like an alternative history of Hollywood. You know, the, Tar- Tarantino has done his his alternative history in Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, and he's going to do this one about the film critic. It's it's like a parallel history. And I, I'd like to sort of take a starting point where a director disowns a film, similar to the circumstances of what really happened to create Alan Smithy. But what he does is that half as a joke, he the name he comes up with is Alan Smithy because he's got a friend called Alan Smithy who he thinks is really talented and, and is struggling to get into Hollywood. He's a bit kind of, you know, maybe shy, maybe, but he's he, he's trying to get, you know, he's kind of off to the side. Um, and he thinks as a joke, well, let's credit it to Alan Smithy. And the Directors Guild of America says, yes, um, uh, all right, we'll take that. But it, because they're so strict with their rules, the real Alan Smithy has to therefore agree to be like the, um, the, the like credited to the director. So he, he gets roped into actually being seen as the face of these films that other people have disowned. I thought that would be quite good. The idea that this person who's sort of connected, but but not really part of the industry, he gets dragged into it. And I thought it would be quite funny because oh, he gets paid. It, it, it was inspired a little bit, but there's a, film, there's a film called The Front that came out in 1976, where a, a struggling writer is basically paid by all the people who've been blacklisted in the communist witch hunts in the 50s to put their name on put his name on their work so that they can get published and paid. 
And I thought this guy's basically been forced to be a front for these films. It's not a fake. It's 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 not just a pseudonym. It's a real guy. You know, he gets forced into it. But the funny thing is, he starts to get this bit of cult status because of all the weird films that have got his name on them. People don't understand why some of his films are good because it was a good director who fell out with a final cut or something, and some of them are total shit. It's like, what is it with Alan Smithy? One film's great, one film's not bad, the other one's terrible. And I thought what would be quite funny is what if he wins, wins or was nominated for an award for one of the films that had his name put on it? I thought that would be quite an interesting because then you're in proper Hollywood satire territory because then everyone's got to kind of start treating him like a real filmmaker because otherwise the whole like the whole edifice falls down. Similar to when when Dalton Trumbo was blacklisted, he won two Oscars for his screenplays under a pseudonym, and everyone had to just go along with it that it wasn't really Dalton Trumbo; it was somebody else. And Kubrick's cinematographer on Spark has won an Oscar for, for best cinematography, even though Kubrick had fired the guy and done it all himself. So I just thought you're getting into the territory of stuff that's actually happened on films. Um, and then you have the whole storyline where after this, Alan Smithy like gets the right to make his own film and then it goes wrong and he wants to take his name off it and he can't. I think you could have that. But I think I'd like to create a fake biopic because you could almost like, like, like the Ed Wood story, it would be like kind of a, a little tribute to these un, like to unsung heroes of Hollywood. And I, I just wanted to create this real director who has to take credit for other people's films, even though he doesn't want to. I thought that would be quite like a funny comedy character kind of dra- to drag in, you know? Would yeah. you would you watch something like that? Yeah, I think it would be, it sounds daft, but it sounds fun. Yeah, and I, I just think you need to have someone who's got a real feel for the material. I mean, the person that came to mind for me was William Goldman, because I'm reading his book at the moment, Adventures in the Screen Trade. He was an Oscar-winning screenwriter, you know, The Princess Bride. Yeah, that's based on a book he wrote. He did the script for like Marathon Man, Butch Cassidy and the Sundance Kid, and all that sort of thing. And but he's a really good he's really good at describing the shenanigans that go on in Hollywood, stuff that goes on in the background. And even if he was past it by the time they were making this film in the nineties, it should at least be someone um, who's read his book and fucking gets it. But I just I just thought do do that story because literally when I, I remember when this the actual film came out and Alan Smith, you film Burn Hollywood Burn. And when a film's got two titles like that, you know they've fucking got no idea what they're doing, right? It was, what if a guy hates the film that's been taken out of his hands and everything's gone wrong, but he can't take his name off it because he is Alan Smithy? It's like, oh, that's quite a good idea. But they don't have a film other than that. This is just a series of kind of in-jokes. Whoopi Goldberg appears as herself. Jackie Chan appears as himself. Just saying, I just don't want to get killed in the movie. They're literally no ideas, and it's really awful. Like, every... Because it's a fake documentary, there's like little subtitles under everybody's name, and every woman in the film is described as a bitch or a feminist. And you just think, God, this guy's a fucking prick. Joe Esther Hart was just a drug fueled moron by this time. I don't know why anyone thought making a film. And watching watching Harvey Weinstein act in a movie now is a weird experience. I've got to tell you, I otherwise don't recommend watching the film at all. But I think creating a fake biopic of this guy, because what I liked about Ed Wood was it was like this alternative history. It's like this is the other side of Hollywood stardom. You know, in the 50s, while other people were kind of making making their name and, and becoming, you know, Don Siegel, who eventually ended up doing Dirty Harry, started making movies back then. This is a guy, this this is the other side of Hollywood, the guy who never made it. I thought it'd be fun to do that kind of fake biopic, you know? Yeah, I like the idea of that. It sounds different, which is better than all the other biopics we've had recently. Yeah, so I, I just thought I'd throw that in. So thank you for going on that journey with me, mate. No worries. That's all for this month's Double Real Features. Thanks for listening. 
Thanks also to my co-host, James Adamson. The music was Mistake the Getaway by Kevin MacLeod. Ed Wood is available in the usual physical and digital formats, but is also streaming on Disney+. The story of the unfinished Orson Welles project is told in various online articles and the Simon Braun book The Greatest Movies You'll Never See. And there is a version of it available to watch on Netflix now. Tune in next week for The Big Conversation, where we will be bringing you the third annual Double Reel Awards. We look forward to speaking to you then. Take care in the meantime.